Gorillas, in my eyes, they are one of the most enchanting creatures on this planet. And based on the number of books and YouTube videos out there, I'm not alone. Gorillas are fascinating to millions. For my next guest, that fascination began early and changed not only her course of life, but her life's work, altering the history of gorilla conservation in Uganda. She has played a leading role in the health and conservation of the country's critically endangered mountain gorillas. To share her 25 years experience, we welcome to Talking Apes, United Nations Champions of the Earth awardee, Dr. Gladys Kalemazikasoka, to talk about her gorilla and community conservation work and her new book, Walking with Gorillas. Dr. Gladys broke the gender barrier about a quarter century ago, becoming the first wildlife vet hired by the Uganda Wildlife Service. Her pioneering zoonotic disease conservation work has been groundbreaking, promoting human public health as an integrated component of wildlife conservation. Gladys shined a bright light on the country's great apes and the critical role they play in Uganda's unique primate biodiversity. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, the host of Talking Apes. Welcome and thanks for joining me. You're listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Talking Apes is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and through our Patreon members program. If you'd like to support Talking Apes, you can do so by visiting our website at talkingapes.org and check on all the options for how you can help ensure a future for the kind of conversations you're about to hear on Talking Apes. And now, connecting halfway around the world from the outskirts of Uganda's capital city, Kampala, my guest, Dr. Gladys Kelema Zikasoka. Hi, Gladys, and welcome to Talking Apes. It, I am so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, you have done such remarkable work over the years, and it's just and and then around a subject that I, I'm deeply passionate about, gorillas. That's kind of where a big part of my career began as a filmmaker. First of all, I want to congratulate you. It was one year ago today that you were named the UN Champion of the Earth, which is it, for your One Health program and, and promotion. And I, it's it's really an extraordinary award. Um, what does receiving that award mean to you? And how does it impact the work you're doing, receiving a, such, a, such a significant global award? Thank you so much for the congratulations message. I can't believe it's one year already today. <laughs> it's really amazing. Um, winning that award, I mean, first of all, I didn't believe it. I was like, really? And they're like, wow. Um, I feel that it's great recognition for our work. Uh, because when we started the One Health approach, like almost 20 years ago, I would say maybe 20 years ago now, because I started even before we started the NGO, we're already thinking about it. Everybody didn't realize that it's important. And it's been a very long journey trying to convince people that you need to holistically, you need to address human and wildlife health together 
in order to have holistic outcomes. Um, so it's been it's been a long road. But winning that award made me feel that, yes, One Health is being recognized in the conservation and community, and they're seeing it as a viable way to achieve sustainable development, which I was very, very excited about. How how much does well for first of all the the NGO that you mentioned that's conservation through public health, and that's an NGO that you and your husband started um, a few years ago. We can talk a little bit more about it in a few minutes. But what does does an award like this? It, it, while it's a global award, and and we certainly heard about it in the West, and those of us who are involved with primates and, and especially um, gorillas, we we heard about it. But in the places where you work in, around Bowindi and in the communities there, is does the does the uh, the information about that award does it trickle down? Do people in those villages hear about it and? If they do, does it does it mean something to them? Um, I would say that they do hear about it now because Facebook is now everywhere. Everyone has a mobile phone. And actually, the Windy community is pretty developed, I have to say. I have to thank my husband, Lawrence, because very early on in 2005, we set up internet in Windy because he's got a degree in telecommunications and having worked in India, in Orissa, one of the poorest states in India, where they used telecom information to enable farmers to get better prices for their produce. Um, he thought, why don't we try that on top of improving community health and gorilla health together? Can we bring internet so that people can open up into the outside world? And people loved it. They loved being able to hear what's happening elsewhere. They got addicted to the internet. They're communicating with tourists after the visit ended. And some of them were even taking photos of their crafts and sending them out on internet. So it kind of opened up the minds of the Windy community. And I think they adopted Facebook quite early on and WhatsApp and all of that. So when the news of their award came out and it was on social media, they got to hear about it. And I think they were all very excited because they've known me for a long time. I've been there in different forms, <laughs> first starting out as a vet, actually as a researcher, then the first vet for the Wildlife Authority, then setting up the NGO. So, yeah, they were proud to feel that someone from who's been working in their area, from their country, is receiving such a huge global award. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's very exciting. And you must have been incredibly, well, I mean, I'm incredibly proud of you. I can't even imagine how proud they must be of you. And, um, and especially, uh, being a, being a woman in that area, a young woman where you first started. So let's jump back for a minute for those of you who, for those listening who may not know your whole background, you, as a as a young girl, uh, were very interested in wildlife. And when you were 12 or 13, I think it was, you, you started a wildlife club in your school. And the, so take me back to that 12 or 13-year-old little girl. And what was going through her head at that time that she was so excited about wildlife and thinking of starting a wildlife club? That's pretty cool. <laughs> Actually, it started a bit later than that, a couple of years later, but I grew up at home with very many pets. Um, 
and I was younger. Although we have, I came from a family of six, which in Uganda was an average family, maybe slightly small in those days. And but I was the sister who I follow was five and a half years older than me, so we were just outside each other's age bracket um, to be able to play. And then my older brother used to like bringing stray cats and dogs home, so I got really attached to them. And I think at the age of twelve, I decided I wanted to be a vet. But I had some very interesting experiences during that time as a child. We had a, um, we lived in Kampala, in the middle of Kampala. I don't know if you remember Nakasero, not far from where Sheraton Hotel is now and the church, All Saints Church. And across from us was the Cuban ambassador to Uganda. And he, him and his wife acquired a pet monkey, a velvet monkey. <laughs> and this velvet monkey, those days you could have pets like that. You know, now it's not acceptable, but in the 70s it was. So that pet monkey used to like jumping over the fence and coming to play with us because probably realized as a child at the other side because he didn't come with his family. I mean, apart from his wife, he didn't come with his children. And so he used to come over and he used to pull the cats and dogs tails and steal food from the kitchen. Very naughty monkey, very mischievous. And then, but I was fascinated by the fact that his fingers looked like mine and, you know, they're so, so similar to us. And at home we had a piano. There's an old piano at home. And my sister, my older siblings had all learned how to play the piano. And so one time I was playing the piano and I could feel that I wasn't alone. You know that feeling when you're in the wild and you feel I'm not alone, even if there's no people around you. And over my shoulder, I saw the monkey was staring at me. So when I, and after I played one, a few notes, I went out of the room to see what he would do. And he sat down on the stool and played one note. And I was like, Whoa, I was so excited. I thought, man, these animals are so intelligent. So I ran into the room and <laughs> and Poncho ran across the gate. I know. And so that, I would say, was my first introduction to how intelligent primates can be. So when I got into high school, um, I got a chance to set up a wildlife club in my high school in Uganda, in Chiguli Secondary School, which is also in Kampala. The biology teacher came to me one day and said, oh, I'd like to start a wildlife club. Because in my holidays, I had volunteered at the wildlife clubs of Uganda. And the head of the wildlife clubs, I think, said there's someone in your school who's interested in wildlife. And the school wildlife club used to be there, but the kids had misbehaved on a trip to the national park. So the headmaster abolished them. You know, he stopped them. And then he was like, OK, um, it's good to start them again. So that was a life-changing experience for me because I'd always knew I wanted to be a vet, but now I was like, whoa, I think I should be a vet who works with wildlife because on top of debating clubs and setting up a bird feeding table to win back the headmaster's trust in, you know, children getting involved in conservation, we took the children to Queen Elizabeth National Park. Um, at the time, there was very little wildlife in Queen Elizabeth National Park because it was not long after the Idi Amin days and, you know, the gorilla wars in Uganda. It wasn't much long after that. So the wildlife was still little um, and there were no predators. At least there weren't any that they were worried about. So they said they allowed us to go for walks. And it was exciting, very exciting for me, except I was a bit sad that there weren't any predators and there wasn't a lot of wildlife. So, but that, so that experience made me feel like I want to be a vet who works with wildlife. And at the time, there were no wildlife vets in Uganda. 
So when I did my vet school in the UK, um, I preferred to go to the UK because I knew that they had very high standards. They really love their animals. <laughs> um, and they would give them the best care. So I was fortunate to be able to get there and get a scholarship to study in London, Royal Vet College University of London. And they allowed you to work on an animal of your choice in the holidays. So in the holidays, I came back and I worked with the chimpanzees in Interve Zoo. I know you told me you once worked with chimps. Um, so I worked with chimps in Interve Zoo and it was just amazing uh, because all of them were victims of the bushmeat trade. And actually that time Interve Zoo was more of an orphanage. And these chimps were so intelligent as well because they used to like, you know, when you're not looking, they would open the wire mesh in their cage and run out. And they were only about like three or four years old. And then they would want you to carry them back in. They were really naughty and very, very intelligent and loving. They liked being cuddled. So I really liked that experience. And then two years later, I got to work in Budongo. One year later, under Professor Vernon Reynolds, I got to work with wild chimpanzees in Budongo. I'd wanted to work with mountain gorillas, actually, but they had told me they're not habituated. I'd heard about them during the wildlife clubs. So in Budongo, that was a great experience for me because under Vernon, there were many researchers. There were a few researchers there, and they all looked after me because I was the young, the youngest researcher there. I was like 22. And my mom, of course, told Vernon, look after my daughter and everything. So everyone was looking out for me, making sure I've eaten, making sure I've done everything. And Vernon, you know, went through my reports, and we went out to see the chimps, and I collected fecal samples to test for parasites uh, using a, a microscope, a, a simple microscope at the Budongo Forest Project. Then two years later, I finally got to work with the mountain gorillas. And this time around, Dr. Liz McPhee, who had worked with Mountain Gorilla Vet Project in Rwanda, had now been brought to Uganda to set up a conservation program called the International Gorilla Conservation Program. And I had got to hear, to know about her through, when I was at vet school. She wrote to me. And so she gave me a chance to work at Bwindi, and I did a similar study as Budongo, a bit more complicated, I added bacteria, but the difference is that she dropped me off after two days, she came and collected me after one month. <laughs> so that was very interesting for me, <laughs> exactly, because she was so busy doing so many other things. And so I had to like, I had to basically learn, that was when I really grew up, I would say, <laughs> because I had to look after myself um, and I had to, immerse myself because I had to now get to know the rangers, the wardens, there was some Peace Corps volunteers there. I even got to know the tourists um, and I was at the tourist side of the park. So I really fell in love with Bwindi and I felt like I wanted to come back. And, and then I also felt like I wanted to become a full-time wildlife vet. And that's when I managed to get the job immediate, shortly after when I finished vet school. Well, I want to I talk about your experience in Bwindi with gorillas of course, because we both love gorillas. But I also want to point out that you were a city girl. I mean, Kampala, for those who have never been to Uganda, I mean, it's a huge city. So to be dropped off in Bawindi, which I'm sure, you know, we're talking, what, 25 plus years ago. Um, yes. Bawindi was, I mean, you're out in the mountains and it, it wasn't a city. <laughs> so for you to survive for a month out there on your own, that must have been an incredible growing up experience. It was. I felt like I'd reached the ends of the earth. <laughs> I could not believe it. And then and then Liz got me to stay in a mud hut. She, what she said to me is because they, were, they bought land just bordering the park and the biggest hut 
used to be the church where Liz lived, um, where she had her office and her, her bedroom and everything. And then there was another hut next to that one, which is, I think, the preacher's, the preacher's house. And that's where one of the Peace Corps volunteers stayed, Tor Hansen. And then my house, they said to me, the one at the top belonged, I think, to another relative, maybe the someone else in the family. And they said, you're the guinea pig. You're going to stay in that hut. I was like, what? And I, I couldn't sleep for two nights. <laughs> I was so worried. But then I had to become very logical. I'm like, leopards are extinct in Bui. You know, unfortunately, leopards are extinct. I had to become very logical about it because I'm like, nothing's going to harm me. Nothing's going to harm me. And then after that, it was wonderful. I could sleep all night. But it was my first time to live in a mud hut because, as you, as you said, I grew up in Kampala and... There are not no really mad hats in Kampala. And here I was in the right at the ends of the earth, the border of Uganda and DRC. <laughs> so the, no, that was a very interesting experience for me. But I fell in love with the place, actually. Oh, I, I yeah, you do fall in love with the place. And it, it does feel even to this day when when you're there and look into those mountains and it's raining and it's misty and it does feel like it's at the end of the earth, but a beautiful, beautiful place at the end of the earth. Yeah. It's yes, it really is beautiful with the mist rising and, you know, and it's been raining quite a lot lately. So we're in Ruhija and it's even more dramatic, more at the ends of the earth because it's higher altitude and there's less development. But now Buhoma because when I went there as a vet student, there were just two gorilla groups habituated for tourism, and there were very few lodges, there's very little going on, but there was this big air of hope. And now it's changed, it's become almost like a city. So I kind of miss those days. I'm being a bit selfish, but I miss the days when there was just a few of us there. <laughs> it, it, it was. I, I was in Bowindi uh, about that, t- in Bahoma about that time, and my first time to go and, and work with gorillas there. I'd been further south in, in, in Rwanda on the Rwanda, well, when I first started, it was Zaire, Rwanda border, yes. and then became the DRC. And, um, and that's at a much higher altitude, um, the gorillas working there. You're, you're more at sort of nine, ten thousand feet plus where in Bawindi, uh, for those who who haven't been there, Bawindi is at a, a lower altitude. What what would you say? It's probably more like five, six thousand. Yes, feet. yeah. Six, seven thousand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still it's this lush green. Well you describe it. Go ahead. It's lush. It rains almost every day and no one should complain because it's a rainforest. But yes, it's very, very green. It's it's just beautiful. And even if it's a small park of only 321 square kilometers, it's still really lush and you feel like it's endless. Even if sadly, you know, there's been so much popula- human population growth that it's really quite small. It should be bigger than that. But um, no, but it's really beautiful and you just feel like that's why it's called the impenetrable forest because going in it's very dark well i wouldn't say dark but it's very thick and um the community called it buindi which means a place of darkness because they used to feel that when you entered it was dark and that's how we got the name windy impenetrable forest and thankfully once it became a national park there's very little cutting of trees so that's really saved the forest otherwise i don't think there'll be much left the trajectory of your career seems to have been even even though you your love for wildlife and starting as a vet it's always been this trajectory towards a more holistic look at 
wildlife and the place that they live and the place that we live. That's why I think the the award that we were talking about in the beginning of the podcast is recognizing conservation through public health, which is the nonprofit that you and your husband started. But it's also recognizing this one health approach. One of the things I think people have to understand is that Bwindi is, for the most part, surrounded by people. These places where a lot of wildlife in the world, especially great apes, live have become almost like islands. So maybe you could talk about your work there as as a vet, starting with your discovery of, of the scabies outbreak and and then how that connected you to people and your your thinking about wildlife, gorillas, humans, and the landscape, and how that whole one health concept evolved in your mind. Yes. Um after having spent a whole month in Windy on my own, um I I felt like the gorillas needed to have a vet um, because gorilla tourism had just begun and it was I was a bit concerned even then that people were more likely to get quite close to the gorillas and I sent my report to the head of the national parks Prof- Professor Eric Droma and he I basically told him that you need a wildlife vet and this is what wildlife vets do. And he's like, and I wasn't expecting that response because now I'd gone back to London and I sent him a copy of my research report. And he wrote back to me and said, come, your job is waiting for you. We're actually thinking of having a vet because gorilla tourism has begun and we're concerned that tourists may make them sick with a flu or something like that, like COVID or something. And I was so surprised. I was like, oh, my God, I didn't expect him to say this. Then I got cold feet. And I thought, no, I don't know enough because I'm just getting out of vet school and you're mainly learning about domestic animals. So I tried to do a master's in wild animal health where we're getting some training because we're dealing with wildlife. And we joined, we did some of the classes with them at London Zoo. But the people who sponsored my education in the UK who were wonderful people, Kulika Charitable Trust, um, the group of trustees who used to live in Uganda. And then when they went back to UK, they wanted to support Ugandans to study in the UK and come back in the service industry. They said to me, we don't support people to to go to study one degree after the other. Go back and work and then we'll support your master's. So I came, I said to Dr. Droma, I can't do the master's, but can I come? He says, of course. So of course I came and I got a lot of training from everyone around me. But one of the very first cases I had to deal with was a scabies skin disease outbreak. They basically said to me that the gorillas are losing hair and developing white scaly skin. We got a report from the Peace Corps volunteer, Karen Archibald. She said the gorillas are losing hair and developing white scaly skin. And I wondered what could this be? And because in vet school, we are taught that common things occur commonly. You know, if an animal has a disease, don't think of the rarest disease it may have. Think of the most common disease that the animal may have. Um, so I went to a human doctor friend of mine in Kampala who also did her, vet tra- her medical training in the UK. And I asked her, Dr. Catherine Sozi, I asked her, what is the most common skin disease in people in Uganda? And she said to me, it's scabies. And I'm like, really? Because at vet school in London used to treat animals got sarcoptic mange or scabies and people occasionally got it off their pet, but it wasn't a disease that stayed because people are hygienic. And she said, yes, low-income groups of people in Uganda tend to get scabies because they, do, they have poor hygiene. And so I thought, I hope it's scabies because just need one dose of ivermectin. So we bought the ivermectin in Kampala, drove to, and, to Bwindi, and 
all the gorillas were affected. There were four gorillas only remaining in that group because the group had split up quite a bit. But they were all scratching and the baby gorilla had lost almost all its hair. And the mother where she was carrying the baby, she had lost hair. And then the juvenile was scratching a lot and lost hair. And the silverback was just scratching. So I happened to go to this group with a vet, Dr. Richard Cook, who used to work in Kenya with Kenya Wildlife Service. And he helped to set up the vet unit there. And he had seen sarcoptic mange in cheetahs in Masai Mara. So we kind of all thought maybe the gorillas are really stressed because they're getting like six tourists visiting four gorillas. And that time, Dr. Liz McPhee couldn't come up with us because she wasn't feeling well. Um, and uh, luckily, the day that we were actually attending to these gorillas, there were two tourists in the group who were vets who Richard Cook knew. And one of them was the head vet of St. Louis in America. And the other one was a small animal vet who sees lots of scabies cases in cats and dogs. So we invited them in the intervention and we all decided this must be scabies because it's not like you can do diagnostics, go away and then come back the next day with a lab work. And, and then so we just went ahead and darted them with ivermectin and eventually they all got better. But sadly, the baby gorilla died or gone. And so the mother dropped her the next day, um, dropped him the next day and we were able to do a very fresh postmortem. And can you imagine the mites were still alive after the baby had died? That's how bad the infection was. Had lost 75% of his hair, was very tiny, um, and he was in so much pain. Um, he also died of, he also got pneumonia. And we started to wonder where did they get it from? And we realized later on that it must have come from the local communities, having done further analysis, because this particular group was also always outside the park. And people put out scarecrows to chase away wildlife. Baboons are even worse offenders than gorillas. Um, and the gorillas are curious, you know, they'll touch the clothing, especially the young ones. And we think that that's how the scabies happen because no one was touching gorillas those days. Unfortunately now, it occasionally it happens, but that time they were not that habituated that it wasn't the new considered appropriate. It's not appropriate now, but that time they were much less it was much less acceptable. So we don't think anyone touched them. We believe that they got it from dirty clothing. And so then this made me realize that you can't really look after the gorillas without improving the health of the people who live near them, improving the hygiene and their health care. And in my last year, working as the first vet for the Uganda Wildlife Authority, we everyone asked me to lead the efforts to hold health education workshops with local communities to look at the risks of human and gorilla disease transmission, you know, to try and prevent gorillas making people sick and to improve community hygiene. And that was a change, turning point in my life because when we talked to the people, we went to like, we met a, a thousand people in eight villages. And when we told them what the problem was and they came up with a solution of what they think we should do to improve their situation, a lot of them said that they wanted health services to be brought closer to them. They didn't want to make the gorillas sick because many of them were benefiting from tourism. Um, so they wanted continuous health education and they wanted us to strengthen the human gorilla conflict resolution team that hurts gorillas back when they come out. So we were able to do that. And that was really good because a lot of what they suggested is what we used to set up conservation through public health. Together with my husband, Lawrence, and a vet technician called Stephen, who was working with the Ministry of Agriculture.
We're going to get back to my conversation with Gladys in just a moment and the amazing world that she lives in in Uganda. But first, I wanted to check in with our assistant producer, Tamelza Bond, and see what's happening in the other amazing world behind the scenes here at Talking Apes. Hi, Demelza. I'm so, so excited to have Dr. Gladys here today. And some of our listeners felt the same. Uh, Sharon Seleski said she absolutely couldn't wait for this episode. And Godfrey Elasmus, who studied at the Uganda Wildlife Training Institute uh, with his mentor, as who was Dr. Gladys, wrote in. Oh, and, fantastic. Yeah, he wrote in and said, she's my hero. So... I hope you're both enjoying this episode. She's our hero too. Uh, Just want to remind people that you can support the podcast through Patreon. Head over to our website, talkingapes.org, and you'll find a link in the top right corner. Patreon is a membership subscription where you can get access to bonus materials. Um, I just also want to say that we love it when you write out to us and leave us reviews. So do head over to our social accounts. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Leave us a comment. Comment, suggest a future guest we want to hear from you thanks guys all those links will be in the show notes as well as on our website at talkingapes.org that's talkingapes.org and when you go there there will be a blog that also accompanies um, this conversation with gladys and we'll have a link there to her new book called walking with gorillas which has just come out so you'll want to get a copy of that um, some of the stories you've been hearing during the first part of our conversation and i'm sure we'll hear a few more in this second half so let's get back to gladys you started with the ugandan what became the ugandan wildlife service and what was what was your mandate at that point what what were yes. they hoping you would accomplish because you were working, I assume, out of Bwindi with the gorillas. So what was your daily life like? Um, my mandate was to attend to emergency cases, especially in the endangered species or critically endangered species, which was primarily the gorillas, but also chimpanzees or elephants or lions, whatever was considered critically endangered. The rest of the wild animals, like a warthog or something, you know, because basically they felt... By the time I leave Kampala and go and attend to an animal, it has to be an animal that's endangered. And But actually what was interesting is a lot of people there didn't understand my job at all. I had to spend a, quite a, a while explaining what a vet does in wildlife because a lot of the conservationists there were all about natural selection. If it's a warthog, it's the next meal for the lion. If it's a gorilla, which is ill, he's okay, he's getting old, he's probably time for him to go. Like nobody really, that time it was hands off. It was just purely conservation biology. You don't touch the species and it's all about survival for the fittest. And so it, it, I had to explain that species like the gorillas have been so affected by humans that we have to intervene. But they also got me to do like translocate elephants and giraffes. The executive director, Dr. Roma, who hired me and knew what he wanted me to do was a lot more um, open, I mean, a lot more flexible and said, no, we have elephants that are destroying people's crops. Instead of killing them, let's move them because we now have a vet. So it was quite interesting just getting people to get around the fact that you can treat wild animals. I think that was the biggest part that I had to overcome, one of the barriers I had to overcome. That brings up a really great point. And you did, a, when you received the the UN 
2021 Champion of the Earth Award, they asked you to do a video. And I was watching that video and you said in there, and I'm quoting you, you said, we need to change the way that we interact with nature, break those boundaries, challenge society norms. And it sounds like you were started doing that even from the beginning, like when they hired you, because they they were, as you said, they were thinking about it more as like a conservation science. They, yes. you know, you leave hands off, you leave things alone. So from the very beginning, you had to start breaking norms. And it sounds like that's something you've been doing your whole career is breaking norms. I mean, all, all the way to being a, a, a woman in Africa who wants to be a vet. There can't be a lot of those. Yes, but thankfully the, the numbers have increased since I started. Yeah, they have. There was one actually in Kenya called Dr. Elizabeth Wambwa. She was with Kenya Wildlife Service, so that was nice to have her there. Um, one of the biggest things, of course, was in uh, Uganda, there were no female rangers, no women out there doing things with dangerous wild animals who were women. And so that was a barrier that... I probably overcame, but people accepted me faster because I brought a unique skill being a vet. Gladys, I'd like to back up for a minute, if we can, and ask you to elaborate on the baby gorilla that died. I'm curious about the issue of community contact. In reading your original report um, when it came out, I know scabies is a fairly common problem in rural areas across Africa with small children, but it's rarely fatal. Why do you think it was fatal in this infant gorilla? We believe it was fatal because the gorillas were are so closely related to us. Um, we share over 98% genetic material and can easily make each other sick. And we believe because it was a very closely related host um, and, the para- and they had never ever been exposed to it, they had no immunity. And it affected them more than if they had some immunity towards the scabies mites. And so that's what happened. It was a naive host, which is very closely related to humans. And so it was easy for them to pick up a human disease. And that made me realize that we have to be so careful with the gorillas. Um, Really, we have to be very careful that they don't pick up human diseases because they may find it harder to fight them because they don't have any immunity. Well, that that brings me to your whole program, Conservation Through Public Health. Yes. It really, at the core of that is is zoonotic diseases. And maybe you could just explain a little bit about disease transfer in that area, how that community is constructed uh, around the park, and the, and the work that y- you started creating in this whole One Health concept and how that how it connects people and wildlife and the landscape and domestic animals as well. Yep, Ambwindi is an island surrounded by a very high density of people around the park, and many of them are very poor or they have they lack social services and they don't get health services. Because actually, when we got when the scabies outbreak occurred, um, a few years later, everyone wanted me to lead the effort to hold health education workshops because I was the only vet in the organization at the time and the only one who had some form of public health training because vet public health is almost like human it's actually exactly almost exactly the same as human public health and when we went out with the community conservation warden and ranger and the district health assistance and we reached a thousand people in eight villages bordering the park where gorillas are always coming out and one of the things they said to us was could you bring health services closer I hadn't realized that they didn't have health services because 
the further away you leave Kampala, the capital city, the less health services you have. And by the time you get to Buindi, which is bordering the DRC, there's hardly any health services. So if someone gets sick, they have to carry them up a very steep hill and walk 20 kilometers to the nearest health center. And they even develop stretcher societies where they can carry people who are sick, who are very sick. And so they wanted health services brought closer. They wanted more health, health education, like what we were doing. But they also wanted to strengthen the human gorilla conflict team that had the gorillas back when they come out. Because people are right at the edge of the park, they're always interfacing with wildlife, either outside the park when the wildlife comes in their gardens or the, when they enter illegally into the forest. And so there's a very large, what you call human wildlife interface. And many of these people also have you know, pets. They even have dogs, hunting dogs, to go for hunting diker and bush pigs. Luckily, in that part of Africa, in Uganda, people don't eat, they don't eat gorillas because even the Batwa hunter-gatherers used to live in the park before it became a national park. It was a taboo for them to look in the eyes of a gorilla. It was bad luck. So they, they used to avoid them. And they mainly went for diker and bush pigs, but they had the hunting dogs and, you know, gorillas got caught in snares set for diker and bush pigs. So it's a, there's a lot of interaction between people and wildlife. And that's why if you only focused on the wildlife and don't attend to the people and their health needs, um, you're always going to keep getting more and more diseases coming in. And that made us realize that we need to set up an NGO, a nonprofit that improves the health of the people and the wildlife together. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that NGO. Um, first, I, I just want to add that to give people a sense of where we're talking about, from where you grew up in Kampala in the city, it's about 14, 15 hours by vehicle to drive to this area. It's not like it's right next door. It's, it's several hours overland to get there. Yes, it's about 10 hours if you only stop very briefly for a bathroom stop or, because yes, it's 10 hours if you're working, but longer if you're going on a leisure trip to that part of Uganda. Yeah, you're right. It's a very, and it's a, the road isn't very good towards the end. <laughs> and it's worse in the rainy, it's worse in the rainy season. I just got back yesterday and, whoa, the vehicle got stuck twice and had to get repaired. Then we ran out of fuel. And yeah, it's crazy. In the rainy season, it can be quite bad. <laughs> and I think that's really important for people to know because you're also not just living in a small mud hut when you first got there, but you have to deal with all of the other logistics. I mean, these I've been up and down those roads. They in the rainy season, they're a nightmare sometimes. I mean, that's that's with a, a really good four wheel drive. You still get stuck and. Yes. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> it's, yeah. So, so it's, it's, go ahead. It's, it's a nightmare. It totally yeah. is. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. So bringing not only vet care there, but bringing any kind of health care and, and awareness, um, it can be an incredible challenge and it's not something that you, it can take for granted. It, it sounds really, it sounds kind of simple that we'll just go to villages and we'll, you know, we'll instruct them on hygiene practices and things, but it's, it's not that straightforward, is it? No, it isn't. And actually with founding of conservation through public health with my husband, Lawrence and Stephen Rubanga, the vet technician who worked in the Museum of Agriculture, it's been a journey. Um, and uh, over time we found that the most effective way to reach people continuously with or without donor funding, is by um, strengthening community-based health care 
which the government realized they have to set up and strengthen and rely on because there's very few doctors um, going out there. <laughs> it's not that straightforward, is it? No, it's not that straightforward because people live very, very far away from the nearest health centers and the roads are really bad. And so we decided over time as CTPH started evolving and developing that the best way that we can sustainably provide improved health services, healthcare and conservation services is by working with existing structures, um, supporting community-based healthcare. So at the beginning, the one a structure hadn't reached Windy area, we call them village health teams, which are really community health workers. They were there in Queen Elizabeth, where I had done some research looking at tuberculosis in people and buffalo and cattle. And But in Bwindi, when I did the research uh, in North Carolina State University and North Carolina Zoo as my zoo medicine residency, I found that people were dying of tuberculosis because once they go home with their medication, no one's watching them taking treatment. And then, you know, once they feel better, they don't finish their treatment and then they develop multi-drug resistant TB and then they die. So two people died during my study. And I was very concerned also. It was very sad. And I was concerned that if TB was to get into the gorillas, it would be impossible to handle. Even in zoos, it's a complete nightmare. Um, and so we felt that we probably needed to strengthen community-based healthcare, And we helped to set up that system in the parishes where gorillas come out in Brindy. So we spoke to the local leaders, told them what these people will be doing. They'll be volunteers. Um, and they should be out there improving community health and hygiene together with conservation, talking about the benefits of the park, um, talking about why it's important to protect gorillas in the forest and why it's important and how to prevent zoonotic disease. And so they selected one person from each village and later on it became two or three people per village. And with these people, we called them at the time community conservation health workers, but now we're calling them village health and conservation teams because when the VHT system came to Windy, they found that these people were already working and they were integrated in the system. And then when we went around the forest to the southern sector, of Windy as gorilla habituation, we started habituating more and more groups around the forest. We now call them village health and conservation teams. We just got existing VHTs and taught them conservation work. So each of them is in charge of about 30 to 40 homes. They visit them regularly and make sure that people are improving on hygiene, you know, and we don't want to force them to do things because it won't last. So, you know, they talk to them why they should have a hand washing station outside their home. And it's not expensive. You know, you get a jerry can, cut it and, you know, produces water, you know, tips. And every time you have water, when you come out of the bathroom, you know, you use soap. And we just try to find things that are not expensive that they can do themselves when they've decided it's a good thing to do it. And, you know, having pit latrines, you know, digging a hole, instead of open defecation, um, washing their clothes more often, when we first started out, people would only bathe once a week when it was time to go to church on Sunday. <laughs> and so now, but now they're bathing a lot more often. They're washing their clothes more often. So hygiene had to improve in order to prevent scabies, tuberculosis, and other infectious diseases. So that was a big focus at the beginning. Um, and it's continued to be a focus. Of course, when COVID came along, the hand washing stations went up even further. But then we also looked at things like family planning, you know, like providing uh, community-based family planning because we found out that people had so many children, they couldn't even, you know, there were 10 children per woman at the time. So not, and these are just the live births, not the ones who have died in between. 
and they couldn't give them proper health care, they couldn't give them and feed them, they couldn't give them enough food. It meant that they had to enter the forest more. Their husbands had to go in the forest a lot more often just to catch, you know, bush meat, um, look for firewood to feed these hungry children. And they always said that we have ten children, half are for going into going to school, the other half are for chasing wildlife from the garden. So of course those that chase wildlife from the garden don't have a future because they haven't even gone to school. And of course, they're going to be the teenage pregnancies. They're the ones who are going to have children early. And they're the ones who are just going to keep going back into the forest. And as when you can't break that poverty cycle, then it's terrible for the people and it's terrible for the gorillas and other wildlife. And so we, that's what convinced me to add family planning, you know, provision of contraceptive onto our model. And it really reinforced our zoonotic disease prevention model. And, and actually liberated the women because now they feel they have more control over their bodies. They didn't want to have a baby every year. And now, because they don't have a baby every year, they can actually do something else. Some of them have started businesses. They're happier. And then with the men, it was about balancing the family budget, you know, reducing poverty in your home. So that has been a program that we've been very, very excited about. And we started out when we were less, like 22% of women were on modern family planning, and now it's 67%, which is above the national average. It started off below the national average. The national average in rural areas increased from 30 to 45%, but in our communities it increased from 22% to 67%. And so, and Kanungu district where Bwindi is, has among the lowest family sizes now. It used to be over seven, and the average in the country was seven, but it's now gone down to five in the country, and in Kanungu it's four. So I'm really excited that, and the district health officer commended us. He said, you've contributed to that. So we were just excited about that because it's a very tricky thing, you know, telling people have fewer children because you're going dis- to disrupt the wildlife <laughs> because family planning is a controversial topic. And so is conservation, I found out. So when you combine the two, it's very hard to talk about it. But when you bring it in the context of improving, you know, maternal health and the health of your children and your family, and in turn, it's going to be better for the gorillas, which when it's better for the gorillas, it's better for for the people because, you know, they're going to have healthy growing populations and some of the money from tourism is shared with those very same people. You just have to present it in a very holistic way and then people buy into it and they're excited to get involved. And they realize, oh, I'm reducing poverty in my home. And these people, a lot of conservationists come across as the wildlife and the forest is more important than the people. But when you bring in the issue of healthcare, you show the people, yes, we, we are concerned about your health. Healthcare is a basic human right, actually. And we're not only concerned about the animals and the forest, we also care about you. And then that makes people warm up to the messages you're giving them. And also it makes them care more about conservation. Um, and so that's, I feel like addressing healthcare in people is just, you know, Beyond preventing zoonotic disease between people and wildlife, it's also a very good way of improving community attitudes to conservation. And that's something we've been measuring over time at Conservation Through Public Health. That, um, we, have a, we have a saying here uh, in, in what we do because we're, our, our parent is Globio and it's an NGO that's focused on, we focus on media. So like we would work with somebody like you to create films and outreach materials. Um, that would be used. So that's our specialty, right? It's doing podcasts like this. And so we always talk about it's three steps, awareness, understanding, and then action. And what 
I'm listening to you say it just reinforces that it's awareness and understanding is that first step. And that seems like that's what you realized in, in creating um, conservation through public health was you had to changing norms meant creating awareness and understanding with the local communities and with obviously probably some politicians and some, you know, people on a national scale too, to understand the work that you were trying to do there. So conservation has always been a very difficult uh, proposition, I think, for people to understand because in places in in like the United States, um, Australia and Europe, conservation often means you just lock away a piece of land and you protect the animal. But in, in places like uh, across Africa, it, people are such an integrated part of it. It's like it's been seamless for decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years. It's been a seamless environment. And you can't just lock places up. And I think that's that's what's so um, important about what you're doing with conservation through public health is the fact that you're you're really going back to an old an old approach, uh, an original approach to conservation, which is understanding that people are part of this equation. Yes, they really are. And it's all about coexistence, getting people to coexist and thrive together. You know, like the wildlife, the, the gorillas thriving together with the communities, because it's, it's very difficult to separate them now, you know, because the human Uganda, you know, like at independence of 7 million people in Uganda, and now there's 45 million people. It's ridiculous. I mean, and it's unfortunately not going to change. It's going to get, you know, that's the trend. And and the family planning interventions, providing access to contraceptives is helping to make, you know, to reduce this trend. The family sizes are reducing, but there isn't enough, you know, you just people and wildlife are always going to be intermingling with each other. So you just have to do it enable them to live together in balance, health and harmony, rather than the fences and fines, which was the original way that it, national parks were created in the 1950s. So do you see from when you started 25 years ago, and, and you said, you know, there, that was at the beginning of ecotourism around gorillas, and there weren't very many habituated groups at the time. Do you see that the the economic value of uh, gorilla tourism, chimpanzee tourism, wildlife tourism in general, that that's had a significant shift in governmental attitudes about the kinds of things that you do in around community health, community involvement and engagement in conservation? Do you think it's the economic side of it that, that's driven that? I really do, because when you talk about economics, everybody listens um, everybody wants to see poverty reduced in the communities. You know, the politicians want to say that they've lifted their communities out of poverty so they can get reelected. You know, it's like it's everybody's best interest that poverty reduces. And tourism is a very sustainable way of keeping conservation going because it goes beyond handouts. Although 20% of the park entry fee and $10 from every permit goes to the local communities, they have to write a proposal and it's shared in a way that more than just that family that gets it benefits, has to be a community-related project. But also at the same time, um, people know that if you want to keep having gorillas and chimpanzees that bring money, which then goes to lift people out of poverty and 
also supports park operations, even operations of other parks that don't make enough money to meet operational costs. They don't have charismatic species, or if they do, they're not habituated. Um, it, people realize you have, they have to be healthy. The gorillas have to be kept healthy, and so do the chimpanzees. And actually, the One Health approach began right from that. It wasn't called One Health at the time, but in order to have a sustainable and viable eco, great ecotourism, you had to make sure that all these health and safety precautions are taken care of. So we sat, we, social distancing began in these programs a long time ago. <laughs> it wasn't called, and, but then when COVID began, it was like, wait a minute, it's so easy to cough on someone and get COVID. People have to wear masks. And so we, we led the efforts together with other conservation NGOs around Windy. Um, we took the lead to advocate to the government and trained the park staff to all put on masks. The government really bought into it because they were looking on TV and people in China were wearing masks and everybody was getting a bit scared. Um, and so it became the new norm that everyone has to wear a mask when they visit the gorillas. Even when surgical masks ran out in Uganda at the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020, I went to a Minister of Health COVID task force meeting because we used to join their meetings for anthrax, Ebola, Marburg, any outbreak that was occurring between people and wildlife. We became part of that task force. So when COVID came along, I went to the meetings and, and I explained that, you know, we're now ready to for everyone to wear masks when they visit gorillas, but there's no surgical masks. I was told, oh, there are no surgical masks, even if you have money. Because at that time, they all got bought out, you know, there wasn't enough surgical masks. But now they've learned to make many more. But at the time, the, there wasn't enough. And a lady from CDC said, you can even use cloth masks. Double-layered cloth masks can provide some protection. They can't, you can't breathe very well, but they provide protection rather than not wearing a mask. And so we reached out to a local entrepreneur um, and called Right for a Woman, started by a local a lady called Evelyn and her husband, Dennis. They are from the Windy community. And they wanted, they were supporting disadvantaged women in the community and they were making tablecloths and nice dresses for tourists. But now they had no, she was laying them all off because tourism had stopped, basically. We're heading towards a lockdown. And so she, I asked her, would she be willing to make masks? She goes, oh, I was about to lay off all the women. I'm happy to do it. How can I do it? So I contacted International Guerrilla Conservation Program and, and Anna said, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a website where... She sent me the link of a website where they, in America they were thinking of doing the same thing because they had also run out of surgical masks. And so IGCP funded all the masks for the rangers, the first set of masks for the rangers. And, the, and to show you that the Wildlife Authority bought into it, they first made a, the first sample was a multicolored Chitenji mask. And the warden said, no, it has to be army green to fit in with the forest and their uniform. And so they made army green masks, which the rangers wear up to this day. But the important thing is it also kept people out of the forest because shortly after training all the rangers in, you know, the, the distancing, really enforcing the distance, because earlier gorillas were just getting too close to people. We had done some research and we were very worried about it. Um, it's also, you know, poaching went up, it really went up um, to the point that... Uh, the lead silverback of Nkuringo gorilla group in the southern sector was killed by a hungry bushmeat poacher. And this person thought he could go in because there were no tourists. <laughs> and yes, the gorillas were being checked every day by the rangers, but there's less traffic in the forest. And so this, this poacher thought, I can take a chance. And the only, re uh, the only, the only way that he got caught is because they, they suspected him. They suspected, they found a lot of 
animal meat at his house. And they're like, where did you get this meat from? And he went in and set, a sna- set snares. And I think there's a bush pig that was caught in the snare and he was spearing the bush pig to take home. And then the gorilla, you know, Rafiki had the bush pig screaming and he got scared and charged. And the poacher speared him out of self-defense. Maybe it really was out of self-defense, but he shouldn't have been there in the first place. And poor Rafiki died. And so it was terrible um, for the gorillas and for the people, actually. Um, so in the end, Rafiki's group split up uh, because there was no silverback in the group and some of the gorillas left. And then later on, you know, they were led by a black back called Ramutwe and now he started to silver. But then also at the same time, the poacher was arrested and given 11 years in jail, which is the longest anyone has ever been put in jail for killing a wild animal in Uganda. So it was a victory for conservation. But as long as there were people like him around the forest, this tragedy was likely to occur again. So then this made us think we need to find, provide some form of food for these people. And when, so we decided to develop a program called Ready to Grow, where we got fast growing seedlings, you know, like cabbages, maize, potatoes, um, many cabbages, maize, pumpkins, beans, amaranthus, fast growing seedlings that could grow quickly. They could have food in the absence of tourism. Because the problem with guerrilla tourism, when you, Jerry, when you talk about tourism in Brindy, yes, ecotourism is very important to enable sustainable financing for conservation. And also because it's not only the handouts that go to the communities from the tourism revenue, but it's the jobs that are created, which give people dignity and make them, you know, really sustainably support their families. You know, whether it's hiring them as park staff or in the lodges or the NGOs like ours or the hospital nearby, which is added because of tourism, or whether it's just selling crafts, so, you know, the local entrepreneurs. But now these people had got, or carrying a porter, you know, tourist luggage to the gorillas. The, the money made someone makes in one day, a local community member can make in one month just digging in their garden all day long. So people abandoned digging and they just went directly for tourism and that's the only thing they did. They totally became 100% dependent on tourists, gorilla trekking tourists. And when they disappeared overnight for six months, the hungriest and most desperate people were those, like the porters. And, you know, probably a porter, his dad is a, is a poacher, is a reformed poacher. And once his son is bringing money home, he won't enter the forest to poach. But then now his son has no money and his son is starving. He's going to go back into the forest to poach. So we thought we need to give them fast-growing seedlings, make sure they have something to eat so that they don't enter the forest. And we distributed first time to over a thousand people and made sure that everyone, before they got their seedlings, answered a questionnaire, they filled it in, or they filled a survey, a verbal questionnaire or a written questionnaire. And we asked very few, very few questions, but they were very targeted towards what we were trying to achieve. And we asked them, what's the biggest reason why people are poaching? They said, because they're hungry. Um, and so I realized that food security is a really big, important thing in conservation. And if you're able to make sure that people are food secure, there'll be, it will really help to reduce poaching. Um, and so we provide, we went to another 500 homes. So, so far we've reached 1,500 out of the 6,000 who were reaching regularly, um, with fast growing seedlings, um, which is very important because then after that, including the poacher's wife, we got a chance to visit her. Uh, she's so desperate. I mean, she's only 22 and she had three children already and they were under three years old. And 
she had she was the poorest of the poor. So we made sure that she's a beneficiary um, because her husband's going to be away for a long time. And so this became now one of the programs in CTPH, which is going to continue beyond COVID. Because what we said to them is, this is not just emergency, but get back to farming. Farming is what you used to do before tourists, tourism began. But go back to it so that you continue growing food in your garden. Um, and so tourism money is not for buying food, but it's more for paying school fees or some other need, which is not so basic. And so we're trying to tell them, please go back to what you used to do, but do it in a sustainable way. You know, like we had agronomists on the team who taught them about, you know, doing it properly, proper soil and water conservation, sustainable agriculture, you know, doing it, even farming on a small plot, but doing it properly in a sustainable way. And, and what they're doing now is propagating the seedlings for the next season. They're really getting back into something that they used to do before, of course, all organic. And these are kind of things that tourism is really good because it provided a lucrative um, economic incentive for the people. But it's took people away from their traditional way of life. Um, and we need to get back to some of those traditional ways of life, but doing them more sustainably. And also, I mean, the COVID pandemic showed us that you can't only depend on tourism. You know, it can disappear anytime. And we've just had an Ebola outbreak in Uganda. It's going down now and tourism went down again. I mean, it hadn't really come back up to regional levels and then it went down again. And so you can't just rely on tourism. But one something else that we did during COVID, actually, before COVID came along, we started the Gorilla Conservation Coffee to support coffee farmers around the park. I wanted to ask you about that. Poaching went up all across Africa, um, working with some of the the primate sanctuaries in Congo and, and West Africa, for example, the, the number of orphans coming into them over the last couple of years skyrocketed because of the, the bushmeat poaching. So you've started this gorilla conservation coffee program. Maybe explain how that works and how that connects to overall what you're trying to do? Um. Yes. Um, CTPH, when we started out, it was more like our, main, our two main interventions was improving community health and wildlife health together. But then we realized that the, a lot of people are unhealthy because they were poor. And also the gorillas, you can't protect the gorillas as a species without protecting their habitat. So the conservation through public health model expanded to habitat conservation and alternative livelihoods. Um, and within the alternative livelihoods program, often when you're going to the gorillas, I'm sure you've seen that, Jerry, you sometimes cross coffee farms and they stop and tell people, this is a coffee farm, this is a tree, Arabica Robusta. Most people have only seen a coffee in a supermarket or a coffee shop. And a lot of tourists are actually very curious, like, oh, wow, so this is a coffee tree. Um, but I came to find out that these people were not getting a steady market or a fair price, and they were still going into the park to poach and collect firewood, and they were not part of the tourism industry. Not everybody can be a ranger or a porter or have a shop to sell crafts. And so we started to engage them, and my husband actually was his idea. He's like, why don't we build a global coffee brand to save gorillas through coffee? So yes, so with Gorilla Conservation Coffee, we started, we found out that the farmers weren't getting a steady market or fair price and that they were still going into the forest to poach. Just, it was easier for them if they wanted meat to go and kill a daika or a bush pig than try and sell their coffee to buy meat because they didn't have a, a reliable market. And so we decided to engage them and said, if you grow good coffee, we'll give you above market price um, for good coffee and a donation from every bag sold can support 
community health and guerrilla health and conservation education in the same areas. And so they were very happy about it because we give them above market price for good coffee. And for a farmer to grow good coffee, he needs to really concentrate. So it's less time to go into the forest to poach. But they're very happy to do it because they know they'll get a better price for their coffee. And so we, so in within that point, we're building a global coffee brand to save gorillas one sip at a time. And we're very excited. We're currently engaging 500 farmers um, through a model farmer system in all sub-counties bordering the park. <coughs> and the market was mainly gorilla trekking tourists. But when COVID came along and they were no longer able to come, we had to look for markets outside Uganda. So our U.S. market started growing further and the U.K. market came on board. Uh, Money Row Beans in the U.S. is gccoffeeus.com. USA.com, gccoffeeusa.com in the US. Um, and yes, in New Zealand, the market also, once the flights could start traveling again, the New Zealand market started to grow. So now a lot of people, even if they weren't able to visit Uganda in the pandemic, I would, whenever I would speak on a webinar and say that even if you can't visit because we're in the middle of COVID, you can still prevent poaching of gorillas and other species by buying a bag of coffee because it's one less person who has to enter the forest to poach because the money that they pay then enabled us to buy coffee from the farmers and then that meant that they didn't have to enter the forest to poach a lot of people bought coffee so money row beans actually the first coffee company that we worked with in the uk they started in may 2020 during the pandemic they've placed about 15 orders now since the pandemic began and they're doing really well because a lot of and, and they just they love conservation and they're very happy to support in this way. So, and we found out that there are people out there who wanna don't want to just buy coffee, but they want to buy coffee that's connected to a cause. And a lot of people want to support gorillas just by buying coffee. And so we're trying to reach those markets and getting more and more people to be thinking that way. Um, so so it's great that um, gorilla conservation coffee we expect it to grow. There are many more farmers who want to be part of this, many more farmers who want us to buy their coffee. We're not even able to buy all the coffee from the 500 farmers because we run out of working capital after the loan from WWF. So it's basically we just need to get more and more people buying coffee and then we can support more and more farmers and reduce more and more poaching. So we just want to keep, keep growing it in that way. I want to ask you one last question, and that was that little girl who started the Wildlife Club. If you're looking back at that younger Gladys and you were telling her, giving her advice, what what would the older Gladys say to the younger Gladys at this point? Um, I would say to the younger Gladys um, to follow your dreams and the rest will follow, which is actually something that Dr. Greta Gaudic has said to me and I went to one of her talks. But basically, I'd say to the younger Gladys, you know, don't worry what people think about you. Just do what you really want to do. Um, at the time, I tried my... It never used to bother me so much what people thought, but it did bother me a little bit. I was a little bit self-conscious and, you know, shy at the beginning and concerned about what people think. But now I would probably say, don't worry about it. Just do what you want to do. <laughs> Actually, there's one of um, the primatologist. African lady um, younger than me. I think I inspired her a lot. She's a researcher. She's also a National Geographic explorer. If I say too much about her, I'll expose who she is. 
<laughs> but she did say to me that um, she was very happy to meet me because we're in a retreat for National Geographic for Women in Conservation Retreat. And she said to me that this is the first time I'd actually sat down to really talk to her. Um, and she, she was like, I'm so glad that you've gone as far as you've gone. She said, because when I was starting out, you know, some men used to say, our colleagues used to say, she's not going to manage, you know, she can't do all those things, you know. It's too dangerous for women to do those things. And, you know, moving animals is dangerous. She wants to initiate all these things, but she's, who does she think she is? She's not going to manage. And he said, she said she was really glad that I proved them wrong. And this was, and I just thought to myself, if someone had told me that 20 years ago, I would have got discouraged. But they, thankfully they didn't. They were always very polite, smiling at me. And, you know, they, did, they never outwardly showed me that they didn't believe in my abilities because I was a woman. Um, I'm grateful to them for that. But they used to talk about me behind my back. But now um, I'm glad. Now it wouldn't bother me. But 20 years ago, it would have. And so maybe to the younger Gladys, I would say, even if people try and discourage you, just keep going and look for those people who encourage you, because there's always people who will be encouraging you. There may be fewer than those who discourage you sometimes, but, you know, it's always good to, like, try your best to link yourself to people who believe in you and can really encourage you to achieve your dreams. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, I know we've had a couple of bits of interruption here with power going out and other things, but it's been worth all of the effort to have you on and, and share all of this with us on talking apes. It's uh, and I, and I'm so looking forward to sharing this episode with folks because you are truly an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we hope to host you back again in Uganda since 2018. <laughs> this time around you'll be this time around you have to wear a mask um, and would love to host you at our camp and, show you our Gorilla Health and Community Conservation Center, where we analyze samples regularly from gorillas and people, livestock, and show you some of the work we do in the community to be fantastic. Sit by the fire and uh, look under the full moon and talk about many ape stories. We could do a, a live podcast from there. That would be fantastic. That would be amazing. <laughs> it would. Thank you so much, Gladys. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I want to thank Dr. Gladys for working through all of the power outages and the stops and the starts to talk to us from her home in Uganda. Her journey has been a remarkable, courageous, and inspiring one, paving the way for little girls everywhere, especially in her home country. You'll find links to Dr. Gladys's new book, Walking with Gorillas, and her community conservation work on our website at talkingapes.org. It's talkingapes, one word, dot O-R-G. For our Patreon members, we'll have a bonus mini-sode with Dr. Gladys sharing stories from her new book. Not a member of our Talking Apes Patreon troupe? Do so for less than a cup of coffee, as little as $3. You'll find all the support options on our Talking Apes website. You've been listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Our conversations are with folks from across this planet of apes, writers, researchers, conservationists, and scientists, all getting us closer to understanding who we are and why as great apes. I would like to thank our amazing team of great apes for all their behind the scenes work, assistant producer Demelza Bond and lead researcher Megan Lewandowski. And I would like to thank you 
the donors and Patreon members who make Talking Ape successful through your generous support and sharing of this podcast. Finally, I would like to thank all of those on the front line of Great Ape Survival. We hope through Talking Apes, we're able to shine a light on the incredible selfless work that you do every single day to ensure the survival of great apes, primates, and their forest homes. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening. And thanks for sharing Talking Apes.